This is the series titled, What's Next? As I said in my notes, that's a period, not a question mark. The Bible tells us what's next. And it should be an encouragement, however difficult the days are in which we live. It should be an encouragement that God says, this is how it's going to go. It's sort of like a surgery. You're told ahead of time, if it's a serious surgery, such as some of us have had that, you're going to have a rough day here or there. I was actually told in the ICU after my surgery, Thursday is going to be very, very rough. She said, but watch how you improve by the next day. And it came to pass. It was accurate. Of course, she had experience. And just knowing that ahead of time, when I was going through this tremendous pain, 24, 36 hours after the surgery, I knew that this was normal. This was the average. When we read the scriptures, we see that God is saying the same thing. He says, this is going to be the experience on the earth right before I return. So again, the series title is, What's Next? with a period. And today, I'll follow up with the same chapter where I was at last week, where we talked about the days of Noah. And Jesus said, when I return, it will be like the days of Noah. Then he goes on to say, as we're going to read now, and also like the days of Lot. So let's look at it. Luke 17, let's read again, verse 26 and 7 where Jesus says, And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they build it. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. So, as I said in my illustration, to be told ahead of time that there's going to be a rough patch that you're going to experience before you start to get better, feel better, as well as get better, to have that knowledge is a comfort. Again, it was a comfort to me to know that what I was experiencing in ICU was not extraordinary. It was the average. And though it didn't diminish the pain in my body, but it diminished it up here. So that I was able to navigate my way through. Likewise, the days in which we live, if the seed of God's word falls on good ground, which is your heart, then you will have the same experience by way of analogy. It may not diminish the pain. It will eliminate the confusion, but it won't eliminate what's going on. Here, we already know that we've been told ahead of time, this is how it will be before I return. Now, by the way, there's a lot to be said about the second coming. We've gone over it many times, both Sundays and Wednesdays. But I would like you to notice that Noah was saved from destruction. Lot was likewise saved from destruction. We have this precedent in the Bible. So when we talk about the rapture of the church, Christ coming for his own, this is part of the reason why we believe in it. That the coming of Christ is actually in two parts. It's easier, I think, to think of it being in two parts than the way some think of it and interpret the scripture. It's just one return. That's it. Noah was saved from the destruction that came on the world. And Lot was saved also from the destruction that came on Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities, the suburbs around it. So we believe that this sets precedent that Christ will come for his church first. And we could cite other scriptures, but that's not the theme today. Christ will come for his church first before his ultimate judgment on the planet follows. Then the return of Christ comes, the second coming. Now, it's interesting if you look at the verses carefully to say, well, what's similar about the two? And what's similar about both of these periods of time that Jesus says, this is what it's going to be like when I return, is that people who were certainly living in times that were not average, and we'll see this in just a second, but they still conducted business as usual. We see this further in the New Testament when the Apostle Paul will write, when they say peace and safety, then comes sudden destruction. It will be, and I'll point this out as we read the scriptures, it will be in the minds of the people just another day. But the times in which we live now, and I believe we are living in the times of the days of Noah, which will only grow worse, and the days of Lot, which will also grow worse. So the times were not average, but the business was. So we see Jesus pointing out that in Noah's day, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying, 
and they were giving in marriage. And then in the day that Noah entered the ark, that day, destruction came. And then in the days of Lot, they also ate and drank. But then he goes on to say something a little different. They were buying and selling. They were planting and building. They were doing business. So we see that the economy was still there. We see that people were conducting themselves with this ambition to get married and so on. And when we look at it all and we add a little of our own imagination with what business was going on, we see that it was a day in their minds like any other. What they failed to see is that the times they were living in were not like any other. How they conducted themselves in business and marriage and so on was average. The times they lived in were not average. And I would like to just remind you that the times in which we live are not average. People will point out that there's always been earthquakes and famines and there's always been pestilences and diseases, all of these things. But there hasn't always been a population of 7.7 billion people in growing. And there hasn't always been the technology that we have now. So we're living in unique days. And then when we add to that the times in which are mimicking the days of Noah and the days of Lot, we have to ask ourselves by comparison, well, where do we fit in? Well, number one, and I cover this subject often, frequently, number one is the great apostasy, the great falling away, which, to put it bluntly, we're seeing it with our own eyes, watching people walk away from the Lord. And again, I remind you, that doesn't mean they're not attending some other church, and nor am I saying this is the only church on the planet. That's not true. But we're watching people flocking to other places where, like Peter said to the Lord, you know, he would never forsake the Lord. And in one manner of speaking, Peter could have judged himself and said, see, I told you I'd follow you. But the scripture says, and Peter followed him afar off. It wasn't the same anymore. And that's the analogy that I like to have in your mind when it comes to apostatizing, which is a type of a divorce from Jesus. The appearance may be that a person is still following Jesus who once professed him, but there's a gap. And Jesus said, abide in me. That means we stay here. I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me. If you don't abide in me, he says, the Father cut you off. And so there's a difference when it comes to apostasy. We're seeing that come to pass. And we have been for quite some time. Many people are unconvinced that these scriptures are true, that the scriptures are true. And there really isn't any amount of persuasion that a person, preacher particularly, can do to make people convinced we can bring the evidence, we can bring the case to the minds of people, but the convincing part is a matter between the heart of the individual hearing the message of God and God himself, something that we can't control, you or I. So many people are unconvinced that the days in which we live now are, I'm not going to say identical, but they are greatly similar to the days of Lot and the days of Noah, but those who are unconvinced, unfortunately, will one day be taken by surprise. When a person is unconvinced of the truth of the gospel, then they become unconcerned. Unconcerned about what Jesus said, or they pick and choose. In logic, it's called cherry picking. And Thomas Jefferson, by the way, did this. He took out every verse that didn't fit with his own conception as a deist. He took out verses concerning the supernatural, the virgin birth, the resurrection. It's called the Jefferson Bible. He eviscerated the word of God because it didn't fit his conception. We could honestly say that he didn't like what it said. So he did away with it. I could give you a lot of examples, but if you're unconvinced, then you're unconcerned. You're unconcerned about where you will spend eternity. Though Jesus was very clear about this all through the Bible. But Jesus was very clear about people will spend eternity somewhere. And there's only two places, heaven or hell. That's it. That's all there is. If you're not convinced, you're not concerned. If you're not concerned, then Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. These concepts, most biblical concepts, are very simple. Bible prophecy, eschatology in particular, is not an exact science. And I told you this. Many Bible prophecy teachers, eschatology teachers, Bible prophecies concerning the last days, they try to make it an exact science. And invariably, they make a great mistake of either setting dates or making statements that are not precise. Now, we have the general principles. And that's all that we need, because as I've said to you on many occasions, if the Lord were to return today in, as we understand it, the rapture of the church, what's really critical is not so much the date as much as are you going. See, I've always read the Bible and still do with a eye towards pragmatism. How does this work? How does this apply? What am I supposed to do? And if you're not convinced, then you're not concerned. And if you're not concerned and Christ returns, as he has already shared with us and warned us, then we are not prepared. 
Let me take you through some general considerations. On the days of Lot, we're going to go to one word concerning the city that he lived in, Sodom. And let me just give you a few verses here for background. In Genesis chapter 19, Lot has been told to get out of the city. He's there with his wife and two daughters, his sons-in-law. They begin by laughing and mocking Lot when he's giving them the message that he himself received from these angels of God. Now, whatever Lot precisely was doing, it doesn't say, but it says that he lingered. Judgment is imminent, but he's lingering. And while he lingered, verse 16, chapter 19, the men laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters. Notice there was no reaching out to the sons-in-law. The Lord being merciful unto him, and they brought him forth and set him without the city. God's work of salvation, we just sang it, is something that he initiates, something that he starts. We have to make a decision in between. But he started it, and as we just sang, and it is a verse, obviously, in the scriptures, he finishes it. Again, simple concept. It came to pass, when they had brought them forth abroad, that he said, Escape for thy life. Look not behind thee. Neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. And we could spend time on this one here too when it comes to salvation. God reaches down. I'm not even considering the fact today that it was through the prayers of Abraham who kept reminding God, what if there's 10, well, that was the last. What if there's 50 righteous, 40 righteous, 30 righteous? He kept going down the list to say, God, you can't judge the righteous and the unrighteous in one felt swoop. And God kept saying, well, if there's 50, I'll spare the city. If there's 40, 30, works his way down to 10. But there weren't even 10. But the point is that if there were 10, God would have spared them. Later, we'll read a verse where Jesus said that if the works done in Capernaum had been done in Sodom, it would remain to this day. But that wasn't the case. Anyway, God had mercy on Lot, and yet still he's given a warning. Now, once you're out of the city, don't turn back and don't look back. And obviously, don't go back. And Lot said unto them, Oh, not so, my Lord. Behold, now thy servant hath found grace in thy sight, which is identical to what was said about Noah. And thou hast magnified thy mercy, which thou hast showed unto me in saving my life. And I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me and I die. Behold, now this city is near to flee unto, and it is a little one. Oh, let me escape thither. Is it not a little one? My soul shall live. And he said unto him, See, I have accepted thee concerning this thing also. Now, here's instructions. Let's just make it simple. Coming from God to say, Go to the mountain and live. And Lot is now still negotiating. And the mercy of God, which is from everlasting to everlasting, he says, Okay, then you want to go to that city, then get there and get there quickly. Go. God's mercy. Who can really truly comprehend it? Verse 22 Haste thee, escape there. Thither, for I cannot do anything till thou be come there, or till you get there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. So, to begin with, and I want to read a few more scriptures. To begin with, we see a great destruction for which Lot was saved. First, he was warned. He was told. And then we have to put in Abraham so that you have application, one application of the prayer life and what it means for other people, not just the fact that we ask God for our own needs. I've always practiced in prayer to put my own needs last, just as a practice. That's all. Sometimes it doesn't always work out that way, but that's usually what I try to do, put my own needs, sometimes even forget praying for others. And we have to see the part that I didn't read to you, where Abraham is praying to God not to destroy the city, and no doubt he has his nephew in mind, Lot. And God keeps telling him, if I find 50 and 40 and 30 and so forth, I will not destroy the city. Not even if there's 10 righteous people, the whole city will be spared. Leads us to another illustration and analogy that I brought to you just a few weeks ago on a Sunday morning here, which is, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its savor, there's nothing to spare. And we have studied at length during the Bible studies how apostasy has been going on inside the church for a long, long time. A long, long time. Began in the very beginning, 2,000 years ago, but it's been escalating. And when the church, if you study Western nations, and you see the church is in decline, invariably the society goes right behind it. So I caution you once again 
to stop looking to, in our case, elected officials to be our savior. Our problem is not with the republic and not with the constitution, it's with God. Our problem is with God. And once the church defects and it's no longer a salt of the earth, there's nothing to stop evil. That puts a burden on us in a manner of speaking, but then again, his commandments we read are not grievous. Okay, so we see that this happened, I'm gonna show you in just a minute, that archeology span has been one of the greatest friends to the Bible that God has ever given. Aside from the Bible itself, archeology, span and I'll point this out in just a few minutes, has found and discovered, this has been going on for at least the last 10 years, a little bit more, where they believe they have located where Sodom and Gomorrah was, once again, right where God said it was in the Bible. And I'll share with you some of the facts that archaeologists are saying about this plot of land. But before we go there, in Deuteronomy chapter 29, God is speaking through Moses, and Moses is speaking to the people. And he says, look, you've been slaves in Egypt for 400 years, and now you're coming out, and I'm giving you a good land. But I'm throwing out the people that live there. It's like a landlord who's saying that the tenant that's there is going to be gone you're going to be the ones I'll use to throw them out. But this is the reason that I'm throwing them out. And then he goes on to explain that. Then he warns Israel. He says, now don't do the same things that they did. We would apply that to the church. Don't do the same things that were mistakes. Well, that's a very light word. In history past. Deuteronomy 29, verse 23. And that the whole land thereof is brimstone and salt and burning that it's not sown, that means it couldn't grow any crops, couldn't plant any flowers, nor beareth, nor any grass groweth therein, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim. And there we learn the name of two of the cities that surrounded Sodom and Gomorrah that were also destroyed, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. Even all nations shall say, wherefore hath the Lord done thus unto this land? What meaneth the heat? of this great anger. And just to jump forward again as a parenthetical statement, in the history of Israel, we see that this came to pass. And now we also see through Ezekiel and other prophecies that God has restored Israel to the land. But when they started arriving in the 19th century, a few here, a few there, it was a barren wilderness. There was nothing there. I mean, relatively speaking, a few Bedouin tribes here or there, that was it. Because God said, don't do these things, because if you do, this is what's going to happen. And it happened. Deuteronomy 29, verse 25. Then men shall say, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them forth out of the land of Egypt. So God first explains to them, I'm throwing out the inhabitants of the land because they did these things, which we'll speak of in just a second. Now don't do the same things because you'll get the same judgment. And we, as Christians, professing Christians, must never be presumptuous about this thing the Bible calls grace, or mercy, or anything else, redemption. Grace does not mean that now we can do what we couldn't do before and get away with it. That is not the meaning of grace at all. Not by a long shot. Wednesday night, I was sharing with you, grace is defined as the influence of God upon the human soul, or your inner person, spirit soul, and its reflection in the life. And we know from studying the doctrine and the truth about grace is that it changes your life. But it doesn't change it so that we are like setting our own goals, though we do set our own goals for various things. The goal is already given to us by God that we may be conformed into his image and his likeness. That's the goal. That's what grace does. Real grace, true grace. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 9 except the Lord of hosts had left to us. Now you see the prophecy of Deuteronomy 29 was already starting to come to pass. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah in the days of Isaiah. Isaiah, again, chapter 13. Speaking of Babylon, which was yet to conquer both Israel and specifically Judah, two southern tribes. God speaks of judgment. And Babylon... The glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Jeremiah chapter 50 and verse 40. As God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighbor cities thereof, saith the Lord, so shall no man abide there, neither shall any son of man dwell there. In the book of Hosea chapter 11 and verse 8. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? 
How shall I make thee as Adma? Remember, we just read them. Adma was one of the cities near Sodom and Gomorrah. How shall I set thee as Zeboim? Mine heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. In the book of Amos, chapter 4, verse 11. I have overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and ye were as a firebrand plucked out of the burning. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Now here, and I don't have time to go through this, here we see something similar in Amos chapter 4, verse 11, that was told to Lot, and it was told to Israel. Now you've been delivered, don't go back. They wanted to go back as soon as they got to the foot of Mount Sinai. Make us a captain, make us a leader that we can go back, back to Egypt. By the way, you should know that Egypt, which is obviously a real nation, ancient nation, is also a type of the world to us. The title of this message, The Days of Lot, Love Not the World, similar to last week's title, The Days of Noah, Love Not the World. In any case, we see that God says, you've been delivered, don't go back. We see that with Israel. We see that again here in Amos. We see that in the New Testament. You've been delivered, you've been washed, you've been cleansed, don't go back. Yet, as I've mentioned so often, so many people are returning back to where they were when they met Christ. And we add to this, I add to this, the fact that Jesus said when Adele was cast out of somebody, he goes into dry places and doesn't find any rest. So he finds seven devils worse than himself. And he says, hey, this place where I used to dwell in is empty and it's swept and it's dressed, garnished. And he brings those spirits with him. And it says that the condition of the person is seven times worse. Can you imagine, for those of us who've seen the depths of sin and what it can do and what it does, can you imagine your condition being seven times worse than it was 10, 15, 20, 30, some of us is 40, 50 years ago, we received Christ. There's so many compelling reasons why to never not only turn back, not even to look back. But if you're unconvinced of the scriptures, then you'll be unconcerned about what they say. And if that's the case, the likelihood of turning back is actually very good. Therefore, as I live, saith the Lord of hosts, this is Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore, as I live, saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be as Sodom, and the children of Ammon as Gomorrah, even the breeding of nettles and salt pits, and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall spoil them, and the remnant of my people shall possess them. And two different nations. Moab and Ammon, who interestingly were the offspring of Lot. And now God says they're going to be judged, and judged in such a way that it'll be like Sodom and Gomorrah. In the New Testament, the words of Christ, something I just gave to you a moment ago, Matthew chapter 11, verse 23 and 4. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven. Capernaum was Jesus' headquarters. Not where he was born. But that's where he set up his headquarters for ministry. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee have been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Now here's something to consider, and I'll narrow it down as I often do for American Christians. Leonard Ravenhill, the evangelist some years ago, wrote a book called Sodom Had No Bible. If Jesus could say to Capernaum, with all the miracles and all the teachings and all the mighty things that you've seen, if that had been done, in God's providence, it wasn't for his good reasons. If that had been done in Sodom, it would still be around. And so he says, now the judgment for you will be even worse than it will be for Sodom. Now, I'm going to share with you in just a second why I keep reading all these verses. Actually, I can share it with you now. Sodom and any word associated with it has always been a perennial sign of don't be like these people, right? People even use it as a lighthearted comment. It's becoming like Sodom. In fact, the Marquis de Sade, where we get the word sadistic. Don't read it. I'm telling you, don't read it. I did, out of curiosity, so I could teach. Don't read it. 90 Days in Sodom, where he fantasizes about all these different sexual exploits. And exploits is not the right word. It implanted thoughts in my mind that now I wish I could forget. But I read it for the benefit of teaching and preaching. The Marquis de Sade was so perverted, so perverse, when he wrote his book about all this sexual perversion, he named it 90 Days in Sodom, an imaginary tale, and please don't read it. Jesus is saying, if they had the grace that you have, Capernaum, Sodom would have remained to this day, as wicked as we're going to see as they were. So what excuse would America have? We have crosses on every church. 
We have in our money, in God we trust, and the intent at that time was the God of the Bible. We have Bibles everywhere, so many that most of us have more than one copy. We can read it in multiple translations. You don't have to know Greek any longer or Hebrew any longer. It's given to you. Technology has done a lot for us in this vein as well. What excuse? Let me say it the other way. Jesus is going to judge nations. He come to judge the nations. And imagine Sodom being able to stand up before America or England, Spain, Germany, France, and so on, and say, well, we had no Bible. Because if we had had the Bible, as Jesus said, we wouldn't have been judged the way we were. I'm saying that to say whether it's you as an individual or us as a nation, if we continue to turn our backs on God, if we continue to elect people who are unrighteous, which I don't know that we have a lot of choices anymore, other than either not to vote, which I'm not going to do that, or to vote your conscience, which I don't think would go very far as far as an election. We are repeating the past. George Santayana, I mentioned him to you all the time, the Mexican-born philosopher who says that those that cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. If we don't look into the Bible and take these things seriously, Jesus seriously, whether as individuals, as a local church, as Americans, and all of this, we will repeat the past. And that's not a history that we want to repeat. Sodom and Gomorrah. As it was in the days of Lot, so shall it be also in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And I'm going to say to you that we have arrived. How much more that we have to go, I don't know. But we have arrived. How much more apostasy will we see? I don't know, but we are there. And we need to exercise great caution. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 6. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample, E-N-S-A-M-P-L-E, ensample, which means an example, unto those that after should live ungodly. Now in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11, we're told to labor... Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Different reference of who the writer of Hebrews, presumably Paul, is referencing, and Peter is referencing, but the same idea. We have it in English, in our language. Let that be an example. You watch somebody whose life doesn't turn out well, and sometimes you'll say it to younger people, mostly. Let that be an example to you. Understand that no one can violate the laws of God with impunity. No one. There's no such thing as now that I'm saved and born again, I can do these things. You can't because they'll have the same exact results. And I think I pointed this out to you just recently. Insanity is defined as doing the same thing and expecting a different result. If we repeat what has been done in history past, we're going to have the same results. And the ones that I'm pointing out to you now are not good. But let me just roll it for a second and say this. If you repeat the faith of Joshua, of Caleb, even of David, who did fail, but ultimately triumphed in his walk, of Samuel, of all these great men and women of God, of Ruth and Esther and Deborah, then you're going to have the same result as a man of faith and a woman of faith, and you will be called a man of God or a woman of God. And we must decide which do we want to be called. Keeping this in mind, God tests his people. So we could say in one manner of speaking that it's a rite of passage to wear that title. Now, this is a bit difficult when you say, well, grace is free and salvation is free, and it is, but the path is narrow. So we have this seeming contradiction, which is not a contradiction. They're just, in a manner of speaking, contrary. The grace is given free. You come in free. You go through the gate free. But then there's the working out of our salvation with fear and trembling. And that's something that we do with the grace of God, but yet we still do it. And you're called a man of God or you're called a woman of God. And you're recognized in that respect. So we have examples in the Bible, which is the reason I'm bringing all these verses out that just simply mention the word Sodom, Gomorrah. Just a couple more. Jude chapter 1. Well, there's only one chapter. Verse 7. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, the Greek word pornia, where we get our English word pornography, after giving themselves over to pornia and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So that brings us into a whole different realm than just a temporary judgment on the city and the cities around it. But we see them set forth as an example of hell or the lake of fire in the book of Revelation, which is where I'm going to take you now. Verse 11, chapter 11, rather, verse 8. Here's the two witnesses who will appear in the future. 
And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, that's Jerusalem, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. Jerusalem is the city of peace. Jerusalem is the great city, but they're crucified Christ in, or outside. The dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. Again, two different connotations, where our Lord was crucified. So I mention this to you just to point out perhaps the obvious. Sodom, the city, the name, all these long years throughout the Bible, Old and New Testaments, I read you all these verses, as well as in the times in which we live now, is always been used as an example of this one thing. Don't do what they did. Do not follow that example. Turn from the world. Turn from violating God. Turn. Do what is right in the sight of God. Now back in Genesis chapter 13, just one verse there, verse 13, it says that, But the men of Sodom were wicked, and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. We know from studying the word of God, all have sinned. But here God adds an adjective, exceedingly. Now this is one of the great nuggets of truth I found just in this study. It's not a coincidence. It's not anything profound. Well, it is profound. It's not anything esoteric. Only I know it and all that. No. Something I never saw before until just yesterday. As I'm studying this text, I already knew Genesis 13, 13. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. I already knew that verse. My curiosity said, well, what does the word exceedingly mean? Now listen to this. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And the phrase thy might, all thy might, is the same word in Hebrew as the word exceedingly. What does it mean? Now you have two polar extremes, two polar opposites. In Sodom, it says they went above and beyond anything that we realize and recognize as violating God. On the same hand, in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, it says, Now, love God above and beyond with everything that you have. This is something that I've been repeating to myself so much. My duty, my obligation is to love God with everything that I have. And the more that I do, the more I find that there is yet to give. The closer I draw to Christ, which is the common experience, by the way, for anyone. The closer you draw to Christ, the more sin you see in yourself, which causes more repentance and more turning and more effort that has to be given to all these various things in our lives so we see our sin. And I found it just very profound that God, in writing the word, used the same exact Hebrew word for sin in Sodom. They were sinning with just no restraint, nothing holding them back. They went above and beyond anything that we could imagine. Again, the Marquis de Sade, writing his book, took up that there. But it didn't seem to bother him, even though he went insane. And then it comes to the Lord, and we're told that we're to love God with everything we have. And look at, if you're seeking after the Lord, you will understand what I'm saying here. If you're not, you won't get it. But I pray that you do get it. As you pour forth, God tests you. As you pour forth, you're finding, and I'll use the word feeling, your own personal crucifixion. You're going out against your feelings. The flesh is really pretty neutral. It's the temple of the Lord, or it could be a vessel for evil. And you're finding that the harder you push in, the tighter you get squeezed. And sometimes, at least I'll speak for myself, sometimes with all the great promises that are in the book, as I continue to make personal dedications to the Lord to draw closer, I find that I'm getting squeezed even more. But why is that? Because God has already given me the goal, given it to you. The goal is to be conformed into the image and likeness of Christ, not the biography of a great Christian, not in the image and likeness of the pastor, but in the image and likeness of Christ. And that can only be done God's way. Again, profound to you? I don't know, but it was profound to me. I found something at the 40 plus years I evidently never saw before. That one word, that one Hebrew word, exceedingly, it applies to the sin of the Sodomites, the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, is also the same exact Hebrew word that's expressed to Jews, to Christians, or to anybody. To seek God with everything you have. Do you have a good intellect? Did you get good grades in school? Then you've got to seek him with the mind. That means you've got to read the Bible, commentaries. You've got to read other books and so on and so forth. You've got to research. That takes effort. And I can tell you this, having done a lot of physical work in my life, most of it in the gym, and I did physical work before I went into ministry full-time. 
And the difference in your sleep is profound when it's all physical work and you would have been rested and tired and sleep well, or when you've been working your mind all day long. It's a type of effort that takes its effect on the body, but yet we're commanded to love God with everything that we have, every talent that we find, not some three out of ten, two, one. Every talent that we have, God expects us to bear fruit with every single talent. And some people say, God is austere. He's so exacting. No, God has our interest in mind. The idea of God creating man in his own image was to have fellowship with one creature that is unique in all the universe, unique on the planet, that we can worship, talk to God freely, or we have the freedom to walk away from him and do our own thing. However, God says, that's not the right way. That is not a good way. You cannot live without me. Again, a matter for more examination and discussion, not for this message. Why there's these extremes. But suffice it to say that as we are instructed to not sin at all, Sodom did it above and beyond anything imaginable. And now we're told, again, came from Jesus. We find it also in Deuteronomy, obviously, is that we're to love God above and beyond, above and beyond the so-called call of duty. But really, this is the call of duty. We are called to give everything. I used to think that if you can get people to pray that you could pretty much get them to obey God in anything. And I found out that that wasn't true. I found out if you can get people to give their money, which I say very little of. And why is that? It's actually easier to pray than to count up your dollars and realize that at the end of the week it doesn't add up. And God says, you give in the tithe and you give in the offering and I will make it up. And you will see my hand work. And you will see my hand do. And it is in 1 Timothy 5, it says, and for the love of money is the root of all other kinds of evil. So if you can get people to, and I'm not one of these prosperity preachers, these false prophets telling you all about the cars and the rings and the homes and the houses and all of that. I'm simply telling you what the scriptures say and what I've discovered in these many years in the pastor. If you can get people to part with their money, assuming that the preacher is trustworthy, and many are not, then they have parted with what is the root of every other evil. And that is the real test because prayer is easy. Oh God, but putting something, when you write a check or whatever, credit card, or you put cash, that's harder to do because you see it. And as I've told you these stories before, and I shared one on Thanksgiving Eve a couple nights ago, <laughs> when my wife and I decided she would stay home with the children, I would be working full time. And we came up short just as soon as she stopped working to take care of our children because we wanted them to be raised the way we were raised. But mom was at home, dad came home later. And the question put to me at that point is, what are we going to do to make up that difference? It was significant. I said, we do what we always do. We trust God. And to this day, to this very day, I've never been late on a bill. I've never owed. I mean, car payments or something like that. Yeah. Didn't have a mortgage. And why? Starting out in a little Honda with tiny little speakers and nothing. We had nothing even when we started ministry. But God tests his people and he says, part with these things and watch. And I will give you more than you could imagine. More than you could imagine. And only the person who actually does it can see it and stand up and have a testimony. So that when you speak, it has that, let me use the word feel again, that intuitive feel that this person is telling the truth. But how many professing Christians never get to see the testimony or have a testimony? They could recite scriptures. That's good. That's good. But almost anybody could read them. We need someone, when, when God said you, to Israel, you will be my witnesses, that you would see it with your own eyes. That's what God is after, that we would see his goodness in the land of the living and not be as we read here. So Sodom, to get back to the story, to get back to the theme, Sodom stands as a name that is ubiquitous. It's all over the globe. Sodomy. I, you look it up later. I decided I'm not going to mention publicly what the legal definition of sodomy is. Legal, as in a law dictionary. I'll let you look it up for yourself. I don't want to mention it publicly. But I'll go to the lowest level, and it does include bestiality. But believe it or not, that may be the least of what you need to look up for yourself on the word sodomy. And why is it called sodomy? Because it's related to the city of Sodom. Pederasty, or pederasty, erotic love, sexually expressed or chaste, between a man, grown man, and an adolescent boy. This was practiced in all the, well, many of the ancient cultures, especially Greece and Rome, where women were not looked on very highly, and... It was preferable in the minds of some men to have sex with a boy, you know, just about reaching the age of puberty, let's say 12 or 13 years old. It was seen as a very high form of love. Interesting as well, when I did the research on this here, 
Every website that came up kept talking about, well, we have to understand the culture and that there's no real standard. I kept reading it over and over again. And there is a standard. It was given to man the day God created man. The moral law was given to man long before Moses codified it by the commandment of God. The only thing that there was written down, what we know intuitively, what we know by the very word conscience, conscience, with knowledge, we know that this is wrong. Pedophilia in many societies was looked at as something, again, that was something to be desired, a pedophile. No need for an explanation, I think, in this generation. But today, here in Western culture, but I'll stay with America, is seen as a psychiatric disorder. But I've always thought it this way. If a man or a woman can have sex in any way that they want, why do people stop there? What's to say? That God hasn't created people to have sex with children. To be logical, you have to follow it through to its natural conclusion. I'm not saying I believe that. No, it's all wrong. In fact, let me get right to it. How many Christians are very critical of homosexuality, but not of being a womanizer? Huh. And God condemns both. In prison, you'll find that certain inmates are judged by the other inmates, but guess what? Everybody's in jail. Stealing is not just as bad, but it's still a breaking of the law as murder. And if you killed one person, it's along the same lines of killing three or 13 or a serial killer. It's just a matter of degrees. And Sodom, it says, they were sinners exceedingly. They gave everything they had over to these type of things and more. But let me just read this to you from Archaeological Magazine. The heading goes, Archaeological evidence confirms that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by intense fire. This is recent as to August the 25th of this year. According to archaeologists working on the site believed to include the ancient cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, they found evidence confirming the biblical record that the two cities were destroyed by sulfur and fire. The archaeologists who have been working on the site for 13 years reported discovering evidence of intense heat. This included clay and rock that had been turned into glass. That would require a brief burst of heat between 8,000 to 12,000 degrees Celsius. Now, since we use Fahrenheit, I did the translation to 21,632 degrees Fahrenheit, over 21,000 degrees of heat upon this space that archaeologists are saying a quick burst of heat of that intensity is what took out the city. But by the way, keep in mind that the sun's surface, the surface of the sun is only a little over 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. We're talking about 21,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Woo! hit this city so much that we read and have already read that you couldn't even grow anything on it for at least 700 years. Now, the ground was so affected. The article goes on to say the archaeologists also noted that the destruction took place, quote, in an instant and resulted in the stripping of the topsoil. The archaeologists added that a superheated brine of Dead Sea and a hydride salts pushed over the landscape by the event's frontal shock wave. And the article goes on about physical evidence and stating that it killed, estimated, I don't know how they arrived at this, between 40 to 65,000 people. To God, even the nations are a drop in the bucket, as it says in Isaiah, when we look at God. And we read that God is not a respecter of persons. We, and you know that I make this lighthearted comment so often, we have this supposed superiority of our ethnic background. And I always make jokes about mine. But the truth of it is, he has made all nations to dwell in, of one blood, that we all came out of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We all came out of Noah, one way or the other. All of us in here, all that are watching, listening, we're all somehow the descendants of that man and his wife that came off that ship. And then we have the lines of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and here we are. We are all nations, but one blood. And there is no superiority, and God is no respect of persons. He's no respect of persons. You ought to read up on this discovery which has been going on now for some time. All of it in our time. And why is God releasing all this information now that we cover here in these messages I bring to you? It's so that we would know that God wrote this Bible, that God wrote this book. Again, some people are unconvinced and they will study and still be unconvinced because the heart is not right before God. And because when we believe the Bible, then it becomes obligatory that we do what God says to do. And man has been in rebellion, like Satan, following Satan, for these six, seven thousand years, almost seven thousand years. Man has been in rebellion towards God, refusing to do what God has said to do. And that's the choice that we have to make. Now, since time has run on, let me just take you to 1 John chapter 2. Verse 15, it says, love not the world. Remember, that's not the planet. It's the world system. It's the way of thinking, the ideologies, the philosophies. 
neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, its ideology, its philosophy, its value systems, all these things, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. We know that this world as we know it will pass away. The planet will not. God is going to have a new heavens and a new earth, wherein, as the Bible says, there will be complete righteousness, something we've never known, something where, you know, there won't be any such thing as a locksmith on your car. Well, you won't have a car probably either, I guess. But a house, we know that they're there. You won't need a lock. You won't need to close the windows. There'll be no sickness, no disease. But before that happens, as I mentioned it by way of analogy, with surgery, we're going to have to pass through a very rough patch. God will come for his church. Then he will come after the great tribulation, as it's known. And after that rough patch, and God is finished with his judgments, plural, then the earth will experience a rebirth. And paradise will be restored, as Milton wrote about. And we shall see with our eyes and be in the place. As you know, my sister-in-law just passed away. And my wife and I briefly were talking about it. And she was just saying how it was going to be difficult not to have her to talk to. And I said, for a brief time. For a brief time. And those of us who are older can tell those of you that are younger that everything you heard about life going quickly is true. It goes so quickly. And I've often pointed this out to my wife. Think of this, 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 and this. How quick it went. How fast it went. I arrived at this city. I was 33 years old. And it just went like a dream in the night, like smoke from a fire. It was gone. And so, you know, I exhort you to count the days that you apply your heart to wisdom, that we may know what to do, like in the Bible, that we may know what to do, like the sons of Issachar. Apply our hearts unto wisdom and to know what we are to do. And it's given to you as you read the Bible. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Now, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. If God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, we read these verses last week, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample or an example unto those that should after live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, meaning righteous lot. He was righteous. Vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. And I want to make a comment here. If you're living for the Lord full out, that's exactly what you're experiencing right now. Vexed. And then we do this and that because as Americans, we're not only granted the privilege, but the responsibility to try to move things. And we find out it's not moving. And if it doesn't move at all, it moves in the opposite direction. And why is that? Because the fundamental problem that we have is not with government. It's with God. It's with God. When we change, then we have a chance that things around us can change. And even that will be temporary, but still it's better than nothing. It's better than it rolling over us. But if you're walking with God and you're listening to these things and reading these things, it's vexing. Perfect word. It vexes your soul to have to be living in times like this. In any case, verse 9, 2 Peter 2, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation, or temptation is plural, and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. He knows how to deliver us, and he knows how to reserve the ungodly for a day of punishment. God knows what he's doing. I can tell you the truth. I don't always know what I'm doing. I only know one thing. Keep looking at the book. I get more confused by reading almost every other book, but I never for some reason get confused when I'm reading the Bible. Some people are very confused. I mean, some of the greatest theologians, and for some reason when I'm reading it, it just makes sense to me. I'm glad for that. It's when I'm reading others that I'm saying, that don't make sense. How does that fit? Read the Word of God for yourself. That's why God had the Gutenberg Press translating the Scriptures into the language of the people because the time is getting shorter. It's getting compressed. And since the 16th century, we have Bible after Bible after Bible after Bible. You say, I have a problem reading, I'm dyslexic. Then you have audio tapes, and you have CDs, and you have DVDs, and then you have a Bible on video. There is no excuse, as I preached to you a few weeks ago. No more excuses. The time is short. Let's go to God in prayer today and let what we've heard and what we've read sink in and to press into God, to seek after him. With the same type of fervency, this is the profound nugget of truth that I got 
from this preparation and this study to seek God with the same type of fervency that the inhabitants of Sodom had when they went after sin. They were so dedicated to sin. There was literally no stone left unturned. By the way, I've neglected Ezekiel's condemnation, God's, that they were also careless to the poor. They also had ease and arrogance. So exceedingly, it means it wasn't just sexual. They excelled in sin, if that's the right term, in every area. They didn't care about the poor. They didn't care about broken lives. They were arrogant. And let's not find those parallels in our life. And when we're praying for America, let's pray that God actually really touches our nation and turns us away from these very things that are definitely present. Father, turn us away from our arrogance, our lack of concern for those who truly have needs physical, those that have needs psychological. Obviously, everybody has needs spiritual. Turn us away, God, from all types of immorality. Even though as we turn, we will be vexed in the world in which we live. We will be lampooned and made fun of. We will be attacked, more likely verbally than otherwise. But around the world, there's many brothers and sisters that have the physical attack going on as well. In any case, we have nothing else to do but our duty. Help us to be reminded that we are knowing the things that we are knowing because of your love and mercy. You're saying, get out of the way. Draw close to me, because surely it will come. Father, I just pray in Jesus' mighty name that you would help us and all those who are pressing in, all those who are drawing close to Christ, though they be tested, though we are all being tested and vexed, that we will not fail in this obligation to love you with all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, all the strength, giving it everything that we have. It reminds me of a woman giving birth. It's that last push. When the physician says, everything you got, and the woman is tired, and she's in pain and agony. And the illustration is given the same way in the scriptures, Matthew 24. The beginning of sorrows, the beginning of birth pangs. But a woman has got to push to get that baby out. with Everything she has after laboring for who knows how long. Hours, hours, sometimes days. We are in the same position. Help us, God, to continue to be fervor, though we're tired from our labor. Though we're tired from the hours spent. And for those, God, who have yet to be convinced. Convince them. Show them. Help them. Strengthen them. Fill them. We do bless you and we do praise you because you're still the same yesterday and today and forever. We thank you, Father. We sang it earlier. You started a good work in us and predicated upon our cooperation. You will finish it. We bless you and we praise you and thank you for this truth as well. And we rest on that. You started the work. We complied, but you started it. You initiated it. You brought it to us. We didn't bring it to you. You brought it to us. And you said, now, what I have started, I will also finish. And we thank you. That's our hope. That's our comfort. With our own eyes, we shall see these things, even the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. We bless your name. We bless your holy name.